Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Hi, if we haven't met yet, my name is Matt Van Cleve. I'm one of the pastors at Blue Oaks. I'm glad you decided to tune in for the launch of this series. Uh, I love this time of the year. Uh, I love the start of a new academic year. I love uh, the reminder that our God is a God of fresh starts and new beginnings. It's possible to learn and grow. Uh, It's a great time for students in particular to be thinking about that. And for us as a church, we need to be thinking about the fact that the number one resource God generally uses to grow us, to make us better, uh, to shape us and mold us, is people. So it's a good time to ask, am I in community? Am I in relationships with people who will evoke my best self, who will help me to grow in ways that God wants me to grow? We're starting this series today that's about community and belonging and life change. And we're calling it Life Together. There's a great book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer with this title, Life Together. If you're in a small group looking for something to study together, I highly recommend this book. Uh, It's a profound book about spiritual community. Uh, You have to kind of translate it for our day though. Uh, It was written for guys in a seminary together in underground occupied Nazi Germany. Uh, In a lot of ways, their lives are quite different than ours, but the book is just so profound. It starts with this little verse that's fundamental to Bonhoeffer's thinking. Psalm 133.1. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. That's really God's dream for the human race. That's why God created human beings, but sin uh, messes it all up. So about 2000 years ago, Jesus started his small group. He chose 12 people to do life together with. And what we're gonna do to kind of kick off this series is just look at the 12 disciples. Now it's good for you to know who the disciples are, partly because a lot of people go to church their whole life and never actually know who the 12 disciples are. Uh, They've never studied them. If nothing else, it's gonna be, be, be good because someday uh, you're gonna go to heaven and the disciples will be there. And when you meet them, it'd be nice for you to be able to say, oh yeah, Thaddeus, I knew you were one of the disciples. It's good to meet you. Uh, but beyond that, I wanna kinda think as we talk about each one, who was it that made this small group of disciples so great? As we go through each one of them, ask yourself, why did that guy get picked? Do I identify with that person at all? Uh, Do I think there could be a place in Jesus's small group for me? Could I extend it to other people? Who made that group great? All right, Mark 3, 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. This has a lot of meaning in it. Uh, Any Israelite would have recognized the significance of the number 12. When God started Israel, there were 12 tribes. And then things broke down. They were in exile. Nothing was working right. By Jesus' day, there were 10 lost tribes. You might have heard of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Uh, God's dream for community was badly broken. 
When Jesus chose 12 disciples, he did a significant thing that no other rabbi would do. And everyone knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying God's dream of community, which was launched once with Israel and is now broken down, is being uh, beginning again with me and the 12. Um, this was an amazingly bold statement Jesus was making. And everyone back then knew exactly what he was doing. 12 is not a, a coincidental number. It's a significant number. Now, Jesus is going to pick like uh, the greatest spiritual athletes in Israel, right? Okay, here they are. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. A lot of times in community, people use nicknames. Jesus did that. Uh, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. All right, so why did he choose these guys? Let's look at them. Let's start with Simon. Jesus gave him the name Peter, uh, which means rock. In every list of the disciples, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, Peter was always listed first. Uh, one writer said he was first in faith, but he was also first in failure. Uh, Jesus got out of the boat one day and walked on water. Peter said, I'm going to do that too. And then his faith failed and he sank and Jesus had to bail him out. Uh, Jesus was trying to teach that he was going to have to suffer. He was going to have to go to the cross. And Peter said, no, don't talk like that. It's going to depress everyone. And Jesus had to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Jesus was being taken away by soldiers in the garden, and he wanted the disciples to respond with peace and faith. And Peter grabbed his sword and swung it at one of the soldiers, cutting off the guy's ear, which was both violent and incredibly inept. Uh, Jesus told his disciples they were going to desert him when he was crucified. And Peter bragged, no, everyone else might, not me. I'm with you forever. And Peter's the one who did not, denied Jesus three times. One commentator said Peter's nickname should not have been Rock. It should have been Rocky because he just messed up all the time. Do you ever mess up? <laughs> Do you ever put your foot in your mouth? Do you ever say something and then you think, man, I probably shouldn't have said that? Well, that's Peter. Peter is not the one who made this small group great. Peter was the first in failure. The next disciples listed our two brothers, James and John. Uh, Jesus gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder. It could be translated Sons of Anger. Uh, in the ancient world, the God of Thunder, you know, Zeus or Thor or whoever, was not an expert at impulse control. I mean, these guys, James and John, just let it fly. They were not very self-disciplined. They had strong impulses and a lot of anger. Do you ever have anger problems? One day they go through a Samaritan village Samaritans don't like Jewish people, and so they didn't get welcomed the way they thought they should have. Notice how they respond. When the disciples James and John saw this, the Samaritans not welcoming them, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> yeah, like they could do that. Like, like they were God and could call down fire. You know, these guys aren't welcoming us. Should we just toast them, Jesus? You know, wouldn't that be a good idea? 
And Jesus says, no, actually, that would not be a good idea. Another time, someone who was not one of the disciples was doing good works, delivering oppressed people in Jesus's name. And John sees that and he thinks, well, if outsiders are doing that, if you know, we're not going to look so great. And so he stopped it. And then John says to Jesus, teacher, you know, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And so we told him to stop because he was not one of us. You know, didn't we do good? And Jesus says, no. Actually, if someone is not against us, they're for us. So let people do good. It's not about us. There was this competitive thing between John and Peter. They actually raced to the tomb when Jesus was resurrected to see who can get to see him first. Uh, When Jesus told Peter he was going to have to suffer, Peter sees John going by and Peter says to Jesus, hey, what about him? You know, like if like if I'm going to have to suffer and have bad things happen to me, doesn't he have to have bad stuff happen to him too? There's this kind of rivalry thing. Again, it's just interesting to look kind of like behind the curtain at the disciples' lives. When Jesus was going to die soon, it was time for the Passover meal. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. You know, maybe he was putting them in the remedial group so they have to learn servanthood. You know, you go and serve the group for a while. After the resurrection, we're told that out of all the disciples, it's Peter and John uh, going to the temple at the time of prayer. Now they're doing life together. Now they're uh, praying together. A guy comes up to them and asks them for money and he's crippled. And they didn't have any money to give him. And so they say, you know, what we have, we'll give you. And they pray for him and he's healed. They start talking about Jesus. These guys who were always in it for their own glory and competing with each other when Jesus was around. The religious authorities don't like this and they want to stop them. When they, the authorities, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Who would draft these guys to be on their team? I mean, they were not trained in rhetoric. They were not public figures. They were ordinary. The Greek word that's translated ordinary here is the word idiotes. Uh, You want to guess what word we get from that? They were just a couple of knuckleheads. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Unschooled ordinary, no credentials, but they were with Jesus. That was pretty cool. In one of the last visions of them that we see, uh, the word of Jesus begins to spread because it's all about Jesus. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Remember who wanted to burn up Samaria? And it was John. Now he's going to go and risk his life telling them about the love of Jesus. Sons of thunder. No one would have drafted them, but they're in Jesus' group. Do you ever regret your temper? Do you ever have impulse problems? James and John don't seem to be the kind of guys who are going to be in Jesus' small group or make it great. Uh, But they get chosen to be in the group. The next disciple is Andrew. It's very interesting. Andrew is listed fourth in the disciples, but we know who he is because he's described this way. 
Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Question, how often do you think Andrew got described as Simon Peter's brother? Uh, Simon Peter was the one who was really well known. Andrew was just kind of the tag along. What would have been ironic about this is that Andrew, not Simon Peter, was the first one to discover Jesus. Here's how it happened. I mean, just think about the dynamic with these guys. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John the Baptist had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. I wonder if Andrew ever felt a little ambivalent about that because Simon got the cool nickname. You know, he got to be Peter. He got to preach. He got to get all the recognition. All anyone ever called Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. No one ever said, and then Peter, Andrew's brother. Uh, I think of a loose association about a TV show called The Brady Bunch. Uh, there were these sisters. Marsha is the glamorous one everyone notices. The middle sister, Jan, she just gets fed up with being the tag-along all the time. And her pet phrase for that is, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Everybody loves Marsha. I wonder if Andrew was like that. You know, Simon, Simon, Simon. Everybody loves Simon. An interesting thing about Andrew, he's just Simon's brother. But every time we see him, he's bringing someone to Jesus. He brings Simon to Jesus. A little kid with a few fish and loaves, Andrew is the one who brings him to Jesus. Some Gentiles are following him around and Andrew brings them to Jesus. All right, the next disciple is a guy named Philip. Uh, what we know about Philip is Philip was from the town of Bethsaida, uh, which is also where Peter and Andrew and James and John are from. And so we have this little click of guys who would have known each other uh, from their childhood. And the rest of the disciples have to see if they can break into that little click. You know, when a church has been around for a while, sometimes you get these groups of people where they kind of feel like, you know, we're comfortable. We, we know each other. And I want to say, if you've been around Blue Oaks for a long time and you have people who you know really well, I hope you're doing life together, but I hope you're doing life together with open arms, looking for people saying, God, is there someone who feels excluded? Someone who feels left out? Could I invite them into my group? You know, I mentioned my friend Isaac earlier, and after he shared the gospel with me that first night, he did something else that changed the trajectory of my life forever. He invited me to join his small group. You know, as a student pastor, it's kind of embarrassing to admit that I can't really remember any sermon that my youth pastor ever preached. But I can remember those moments where I was at the end of my rope and my small group prayed with me. I remember sharing my highs and my lows with them and finding a place where I belonged. For the first time in my life, I was able to be myself and feel like I was enough. I would not be a student pastor today without my high school small group. When I got married seven years ago, all my groomsmen were from that first small group. So I wholeheartedly believe that one of the greatest investments you can make is that of relationships, investing in the lives of others as they invest into yours. You were created and wired by a relational God to be in community with others. 
And we believe that authentic relationships and spiritual growth are connected in God's design. That's why we'd love for you to be a part of a small group. But don't just take my word for it. Listen to Dave's story of his experience with a small group. Hi, my name is Dave Hahn, and I'm one of many small group leaders here at Blue Oaks Church. I wanted to tell you my story about small groups. As a guy, it can be easy to focus on building relationships at home and at work, but then lose sight of building strong male relationships and community at church. Some years ago, I was in a small group. I went through the motions. I showed up for most of our meetings, read the books, studied the verses, shared my thoughts about those books and the verses, and then I went about my week. Check mark. Back then, I believed manly strength was demonstrated by an image of having it together. Truth was, I was really broken under the mask, but my small group participation stayed in the safe space of cerebral sharing and fell short of emotional and spiritual sharing. God gave me a chance to share my brokenness and grow from it, and I know now that I really missed out. Fast forward, and I grew enough emo emotional maturity to know that strength actually comes from being vulnerable. I had a different experience when I shared my struggles, hopes, fears, sins, and weaknesses. I came to know the real value of a small group. In one small group, the opening question of men was, how is your heart? Man, the first time I heard that question, I froze. But I heard some other guys sharing some really vulnerable stuff, and gradually, I felt safe enough to do the same. In an ironic twist, I actually felt less shame the more I shared. I learned that other guys thought more of me for being sincere and vulnerable, not less. I made lasting relationships with other guys. I suddenly found my phone was filled with text messages of sharing, praise, prayer, encouragement, and best of all, connection. Morgan Snyder, in his book, Becoming a King, gives a framework for relationships. In it, he puts relationships with those he calls like-hearted men near the top, behind only God, soul care, and family. In his book, he urges us to find other like-hearted men living in the same direction. Be one with them. When they struggle, you are with them. For me, this means finding some guys who listen well, who want to dive deep into the word, who want to be more tomorrow than they are today, and who pray for me. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that it changed my life to decide to be involved in community with other like-hearted men. Not only did I discover healthy and deep relationships with other guys for maybe the first time ever, but I also got closer to God in the process. We're launching groups in a few weeks. We have both online and in-person options for you. Registration is now open. I encourage you not to miss this opportunity to connect with others and take the next step in your spiritual growth. Experience for yourself why life is better connected with others. Head to blueoakschurch.org, click on the latest news button and scroll down to small groups. You'll be able to search for a group that best fits your needs. Why wait? Register today. Let's rejoin Matt as we continue to look at Jesus' first small group. All right, another one of the disciples was a guy named Thomas. Uh, you might've heard the phrase doubting Thomas. Uh, that's Thomas, because after Jesus was resurrected, Thomas is the guy who said, I don't believe it. If I can't uh, see and feel his wounds, I don't believe it. Here's an interesting thing about Thomas that we find in scripture. 
Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12. Thomas was also known as Didymus. Uh, why is he described that way? Uh, Didymus was the Greek word for twin. Uh, Thomas was a twin. Now in our day, we kind of think twins are really cool as a general rule. Uh, we understand the burden of twins, but when someone else has twins, it's like, wow, that's really cool. Uh, our best friends have twins. It's a really cool thing. Uh, they're pretty cool kids, actually. Uh, I read about a set of twins. One of them was born on December 31st at 1158. The second one was delivered on 1201 on January 1st. They're twins, but they're born in two separate years. Uh, the firstborn gets to say, I'm a year older than you. And they get bragging rights. Now, in the ancient world, twins were not very cool. In the ancient world, childbirth was very dangerous, often ended in the death of the child and or the mom. A multiple birth, as you might imagine, was exponentially more dangerous. In the ancient world, twins generally were a bad, a bad sign. They were like a bad omen. Uh, plus, in the ancient world, the firstborn son got the birthright. Uh, he became the heir and carried on the family. The firstborn son is the one who mattered. So if you had twins and they were both boys, uh, the second son was going to make it kind of hard to keep track of, you know, which one is the firstborn. It would have been a mess. Uh, he might threaten his brother's life or something. Often the firstborn would get the real cool name. The secondborn would often just get the name twin. Well, Thomas was the Aramaic word Talma, which means twin. And then just in case you didn't know that he's just like an afterthought, he's also known as Didymus, the Greek word for twin. It would be like in our day having a secondborn twin and naming him Xerox, like the unnecessary one, the copy. Like here's our twin boys, Pete and Repeat, or our twin girls, Kate and Duplicate. Okay, I'm done. Uh, part of why this was a deal with Thomas was because there was this duality to him. Uh, there was this double nature to him. There was this, you know, he's a disciple, but he's a doubter. He's a believer, but he's a skeptic. Do you ever doubt? Do you ever wonder, ever feel like you pray and you just don't know? Do you ever feel negative? Listen, Thomas didn't make Jesus' group great, but there was room for him. Uh, this is what Bonhoeffer wrote. The exclusion of the weak and insignificant, the seemingly useless people from a Christian community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. In the poor brother, Christ is knocking at the door. See, this is what's so brilliant about his book and more than that about the Bible. Uh, God has this dream for community. And it's very different than the human community that's built on human aspirations. It's not about drafting perfect people who will make the group more perfect. In God's community, no one is perfect. And yet we all belong in community. When I think I don't want to be a part of a community where the weak or insignificant are there, uh, the seemingly useless, useless people, I'm shutting out Jesus. And by the way, guess what? I'm the weak. I'm the useless. You see, there's nothing like Christian community. It's not about, can I be around people who will make me feel good about myself and who are high status and will be useful for my career? It's not networking. It's hard. 
It's not glamorous, but it's a group through which God is going to redeem the world. All right, let's keep going. We see this more. The next disciple is another guy named Simon. Uh, to distinguish him from Simon Peter, he's called Simon the Zealot. Uh, now, the Zealots were a group of people who were very zealous for the law of Israel, for the way of Israel. They eventually became a political party dedicated to the overthrow of Rome uh, through violence, if necessary. They hated uh, the Roman occupiers, especially they hated Roman soldiers. The only people they hated more than Roman soldiers were tax collectors because tax collectors were actually Israelites who colluded with Rome to get money from their own people. It made tax collectors rich. Simon the Zealot is one of the disciples. And he watched while Jesus was approached by a Roman centurion who asked him to save his servant who was suffering terribly. And Jesus says, yeah, I'll help. Do you want me to come to your home and heal him? And the Roman centurion said, you don't have to come. I mean, just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus says to him, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And Simon the Zealot is going crazy. Jesus, you're killing me. That's the guy I want to get rid of. And you're praising him. The only guy worse than him is a tax collector. All right, so that's Simon the Zealot. The next disciple is Matthew, the tax collector. <laughs> Jesus says, hey, Matthew and Simon, you guys room together for a while. I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like? They would have driven each other crazy. Jesus must have loved it. You see, Christian community is not the place where you get away from difficult people. When you join a small group, it's not going to be a place where everyone makes you feel good and agrees with you all the time. It's going to be a place where there's someone there who just bothers the daylights out of you. And when they move away, don't breathe a sigh of relief because someone else will most likely take their place. That's part of how God grows people. Jesus' small group is where Simon the Zealot is always going to find Matthew, to, Matthew the tax collector. All right, there's a couple more obscure disciples. There's another one named James, and he's not the brother of John. He's a different James. Uh, he's probably the one referred to as James the Less. Uh, how would you like to have that one for a nickname? Uh, then another character named Thaddeus. Uh, we also know him as Judas. Um, about all we know about him is that he asked Jesus one time at the end of his life a question. And then Judas, not Judas Iscariot. By the way, how would you like to be this Judas the rest of his life? You're Judas, one of the disciples? Yeah, the other Judas. <laughs> Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? You know that old saying, there's no such thing as a dumb question? Uh, well, there is such a thing as a dumb question, and that's it right there. I mean, the disciples are always asking, Jesus, when are you going to reveal yourself as the Messiah to all of Israel and not just to tell us who you are? And the reason they did that was, like all of Israel, they were waiting for the Messiah to take charge and to take the throne. When Jesus would do that, they thought, then they would get their throne. They would get their power. They would get their wealth. It would be good for them. They were always saying, Jesus, when are you going to let everyone know who you are? And what Jesus said over and over is, guys, 
I'm not headed to a crown. I'm headed to a cross. You know, in every group, there's someone who doesn't get it. Do you ever feel like you're the one who doesn't get it? Do you ever feel a little slow? Well, there's room in Jesus's small group for you. Thaddeus is not who made the group great. Then there's Bartholomew. Uh, we don't know much about him. Uh, Bar was uh, the Hebrew word for son. Uh, his name could mean son of the furrows. Uh, it could be that he was the one who left land. Uh, he might've been from a landowning family. Uh, and I can imagine becoming a part of the disciples and at some point thinking, man, am I doing this? Am I crazy, really? And maybe it was Bar Bartholomew, Jesus was looking at one time when he taught, and everyone who has left houses or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus was saying, you're not crazy, Bartholomew. And then there's one more disciple, and you know who it is, uh, Judas Iscariot, thief, liar, betrayer. You see, there's room in Jesus's small group for anyone and everyone. Even when he betrayed Jesus, Jesus called him friend. Judas Iscariot didn't make the group great. And you just go through this list, you think like, what a weird selection of players to be on a team. Who made that group great? Who made the group great? And you have a really good shot at getting this one right because this is a church service. Uh, who made that group great? Who made the disciples great? Jesus made the disciples great. There's actually a real profound point here. What makes Christian community Christian isn't the presence of Christians. It's the presence of Jesus. It's in Christian community that the presence of Jesus is made available to us. Now we can ignore it, we can be blind to it, but in Christian community, the presence of Jesus is made available. Do you know how much our world is just dying for this? I had a, a woman come up to me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was so poignant. Uh, she and her family had moved to the Bay Area from the Midwest, and she said, you know, when we were in the Midwest, we had so many people, so many relationships around us. We had cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents. Now we have no one. We feel so alone. It's just us, my husband and my daughter and me. I mean, she has no one. You know, people are just dying to be a part of a family. Maybe they're really successful people, sometimes really educated people, but loneliness and an ache to belong is just an epidemic in our world. People go through horrible crisis, they have no one. And God has this dream, Psalm 133, one, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So Jesus starts this small group and there's a reason why he starts it with these ordinary people. And that's because it's for you and for me. And I hope you'll be a part of it. If you're not in a small group, I hope you'll get in one of these little communities because you need it and they need you. It won't be easy. It might be really difficult. It might be really hard. That's okay. It's not about being easy or a fantasy. It's not about your dream. It's just about you and Jesus loving real people. 
Jesus started this small group 2,000 years ago with these 12 uh, unlikely guys, you know, chronic, messed up, sons of thunder, uh, big time doubters, little click stuff going on, guys who uh, can't ever get along with each other, traitor, deceiver. What are the odds that 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, it would still be growing? But here we are. And you could be a part of that. I hope you will. Next week, we're going to talk about what can destroy that so fast. Uh, you'll want to make sure that you're tuned in for that. But now let me pray for you. God, we're so grateful for this idea of community that, that you invented so that we can be in relationship with others. And we see the value of it to, to grow with one another, to sharpen one another, to serve one another, to love one another. God, help us to uh, find that type of community so that we can live our best selves the way that you uh, created us to live, the way that you want us to live. God, if there's anyone listening right now who is not in community, I pray that they would take that next step and get into community and realize uh, this life that you have for them. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.